Hello, my friends. It is February 1st, 2023. You are tuned into Canadian Patriot Radio, and I'm your host, Critch. We got a special episode for you guys today. Um, I got turned on to an excellent show called Redacted by Uncle Buck. And uh, <clears throat> man, they have been doing incredible investigative journalism on Ukraine. Um, they are spilling the beans about what's actually going on. It's pretty much what you expected. Um, we're not being told any, even a sliver of the truth around here. But first we're going to open <clears throat> with the uh, special news or uh, True North is doing a special coverage of... Uh, what Trudeau is doing with the uh, fertilizer targets, uh, with the whole climate change agenda. <clears throat> this was actually written today, and the title reads, Exclusive, Fed's new fertilizer targets would harm Canadian crop production. This is by Cosmin Deserzda. And uh, like I said, it was written today. The federal government was aware that fertilizer emission targets introduced by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in 2020 would unfairly target Western Canada by harming farm yields. But it went ahead with the policy anyway, considering the fact that, what, that the Western provinces account for over 90% of can, uh, Canada's canola, spring wheat, and barley crops. Any slight reduction could upend exports and food supply at a national level. Documents acquired by True North through the access to information request show how a web of unachievable expectations are being placed upon the backs of Alberta and prairie farmers. <clears throat> As part, of the, as part of the Liberal government's 2020 climate plan, Ottawa has asked willing farmers to reach a 30% reduction below 2020 levels on emissions from fertilizer use by 2030. During consultation, farmers have argued that their existing sustainability practices are being ignored and that there's little leeway to cut more emissions without impacting their, their ability to grow food. In an interview with True North, Robert Sake founder and CEO of the independent consulting group Advisor Pro said that Ottawa's refusal to listen is a major concern for the industry and compared to other parts of the world Canada's farmers bear a golden standard. What really leads us to, us to be concerned is that we're not getting any signal from the federal government has taken into account what farmers are doing already with respect to variable rates, nitrogen application, etc. These things are very important and they're not taken into account, said Sake. We're actually very efficient when it comes to nitrogen utilization. Among the highest in the world are places like India or China where their, envir where their environment leads to a lot of nit nitrogen de degradation. While the program is still being worked out in 2020, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada raised the issue of how the 30% below 2020 level target was likely unachievable for Western Canadian farmers without impacting yields in a federal analysis on emission reductions. It will be more challenging in Western Canada to reduce both direct and indirect fertilizer emissions due to a combination of lower nitrogen application rates as well as dried, dried conditions. Hence, it is less likely that rates can be reduced in Western Canada without impacting yields, claimed a preliminary science-based assessment. <clears throat> the notes were updated, but the documents released by the department covered the period between August 2020 and December 2021. So the thing is, absolute reduction means that invariably there'll be an absolute reduction in the yield, explains Sake. Reduction in nitrogen means that Western Canadian production will be going down exactly when the world needs us to increase production and we need to do it with the same land footprint 
and we need to do it by applying technology. Although the federal government insists that the voluntary target won't require a blanket reduction of fertilizer use, the government's own data shows that from 2005 to 2019, fertilizer has increased across the country by 71%. On top of that, the government has set goals for the industry to become one of the top five competitors in the global agri-food sector by 2025. A variable region-specific factors like uh, a variety of region-specific factors like dry conditions, uh, semi-arid topography, and lower nitrogen application rates make it more difficult for western regions to further reduce emissions. On this front, federal officials anticipated resistance from Alberta. We should note expected criticism from Alberta regarding the fertilizer emission reduction target, wrote our Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada Deputy Director Michelle Morrow in an October 26, 2021 email. Except the minutes from a meeting with provincial counterparts counterparts show that the critical information was omitted. Instead, Ottawa told Western provinces they wanted the agriculture sector to increase its productivity and painted the 30% below 2020 target uh, levels target as lenient. Oh, man. May, 20, May 21st, 2021 meeting minutes show that how an unnamed representative from Saskatchewan raised concerns about Agriculture Canada opting for an absolute emissions reduction instead of an emissions intensity reduction. When we are looking at the production and growth targets, <clears throat> there is going to be production increases. And when we look at production increases, there will be an increase in fertilizer use. Can you help us understand what, what was the basic, the basis to pick an absolute emission reduction versus intensity? Asked the Saskatchewan government rep. Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada director, Alexander Lefebvre responded, the only thing I would add is that the fact that the baseline for the target is 2020, not 2005, which is in part to encompass into account that production has significantly increased since 2005. It's not the same baseline that is normally considered for Paris for the Paris Accord. This is a comment we hear often. Of course, we want productivity to increase, which makes the challenge even more challenging. <laughs> According to a 2021 economic study commissioned by, by Fertilizer Canada titled Implications of a Total Emissions Reduction Target on Fertilizer, Saskatchewan could see a 54% reduction in farming cash receipts or an estimated cumulative loss of $21.2 billion between 2023 and 2030. Likewise, Albertan farmers could lose out on $13.7 billion over the same time period. <clears throat> um... This is exactly what we're seeing these fascists that masquerade as liberals do in every other uh, sector of our economy. So that now, now what we're doing is we're highlighting what they're doing to farmers. They're, they're, they're weaseling their way in through um, <clears throat> basically fer fertilizer or emissions. They're calling it emissions. <clears throat> but they're uh, like, did you, did, those numbers are, are absolutely horrifying. A cumulative loss of $21.2 billion between 2023 and 2030. Do you know how many farms are done? If that's the, the loss that we're looking at, do you know how many family farms? It will only be big, huge corporate farms left, if that's the case. Same, same goes for Alberta, $13.7 billion. <clears throat> you're, seeing, you're seeing them crush the middle-class farmer. That's exactly what this is. It's the same thing they're doing in every other economic avenue in this country. They're doing it to oil, the oil industry. They're doing it to the construction industry. They're doing it to manufacturing. They're doing it to farming. They're doing it to absolutely everything, transportation, you name it. 
Ah, oh, this is horrifying. <clears throat> I I don't know how the liberals are ever going to get through another election. Honestly, like if if it's not tainted, they have no hope because they've pissed off everybody. Absolutely everybody. Like nobody wants these people in power anymore. Okay, my friends, let's uh let's get this show started because this one's going to be a little bit longer. Um, these two interviews that I'm going to bring you from Redacted are are unreal. Um, the Eva Bartlett one is a little bit uh, older, but all the information in it is still completely relevant to today. And then uh, we've got uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, a military analyst, talking about basically what's going on today, what's being said right now. So uh, both are unreal, uh, shocking. Um, n- probably won't be any surprise to you guys that we are being lied to. Every single thing on the media and coming out of government is lies. All lies. Not a big surprise to this audience, but it's 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 wild to actually hear it uh, being accounted for or being, have someone basically testify as to what is actually going on. Okay, my friends, we'll be right back. Welcome, friends, to Canadian Patriot Radio, where conspiracy is not theory and political corruption finds the spotlight. CPR, we are committed to upholding Canadians' God-given rights to life, liberty, and freedom with all thy sons. Command. Welcome back, my friends. We are going to jump right into this interview with uh, Eva Bartlett because, like I said, it's it's really long, but it's so relevant. Uh, the information in this is just unbelievable. Um, I when I heard it for the first time, actually, and I should uh, honorary mention it was El Hombre that turned me on to this interview. Um, unreal, unreal. Um, I don't think anything is going to stand out and shock you. Well, actually, there will be a bit. It, it, there's some of it that blew me away, but this it, it's it's you got to hear the whole thing. Um, so let's just let's just get it started. And uh, we'll comment after, but you won't hear much of me in this show because this is all just unbelievable information. All right, here we go, my friends. 
Welcome to Redacted Conversations. I'm Clayton Morris. On this show, we invite journalists, researchers, thought leaders on to discuss topics that are ignored or suppressed by the Western media. Today, we're joined by Ava Bartlett. She is a Canadian independent journalist who spent years on the ground covering conflict zones in the Middle East, especially in Syria, Palestine, where she lived for nearly four years. Ava is a recipient of the 2017 International Journalism Award for International Reporting. She's been covering the war in Ukraine, and today she joins us from Ukraine. Ava, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Why did you decide to go to Ukraine? Well, to be clear, I'm actually in the Donetsk People's Republic, uh, one of two autonomous republics formerly in eastern Ukraine. Um, and I came back here um, to Donetsk uh, because I, I had come here in 2019 and I had gone to areas uh, north of Donetsk, um, north of a city called Gorlovka, uh, which were on a daily basis and still continue to be uh, on a daily and nightly basis being shelled by Ukrainian forces uh, in violation, by the way, of the Minsk Accords of, I think it was 2015. Uh, Ukraine has been using prohibited heavy weapons and shelling residential areas, uh, literally terrorizing the civilians living there, driving them out of those villages. And not only that, but they've been, uh, the Ukrainian forces have been bombing the cities themselves, including Donetsk, where I am now. Uh, so I came back here because this is a very much underreported issue. Uh, it's, it's, to my knowledge, it's not getting any uh, reporting in mainstream media at all. Uh, and if there is any reference to these republics, um, it's usually in a negative light uh, and, and totally dismissing um, the uh, a modest estimate is 13,000 uh, who've been killed in Ukraine's war in the Donbass uh, in the last eight years. So I came back here to do what I ca uh, can, excuse me, to shed some light on this issue. When you say that uh, largely, if it is reported, it's negative reporting or negative coverage, right. what do you mean by that? What, what, have, what have you seen where you've just shaken your head? Um, so, for example, uh, if, if people, if the republics are referred to, they're usually called um, pro-Russian separatist republics. And while that, that is true, people here are ethnically Russian, so hence they are pro-Russian. It does have a negative connotation in, in Western media and to a Western audience, where everything to do with Russia has been demonized for years and years. So instead of referring to these people as uh, formerly Ukrainians, um, uh, or for, sorry, um, formerly part of Ukraine, and instead of actually uh, um, for example, giving any context as to why they chose to be autonomous, none of that context is given. They're simply uh, dismissed as pro-Russian uh, separatist. So, um, you know, and it is the same, by the way, with how Western media treated Syria. They either, again, don't report on uh, issues or they, they distort uh, the way they report so that the Western uh, audience is not given the information that's needed for them to fully understand what's really happening on the ground here. Thank you for that. And you mentioned sleep deprived. I mean, we can only we can only imagine, you know, from afar watching a war correspondent and what that looks like and what that entails. Uh, just in the past 24 hours, what has been your experience in this coverage? Uh, how much sleep do you get? What are you seeing on a daily basis? Well, no, I, I don't want to be dramatic. Um, I am in Donetsk. I was in Mariupol. Um, on the 24th, 25th, I think it was. Um, I might be wrong about those dates. And I also, uh, hopefully we'll get into this. I, I was also west of Mariupol where Western media was claiming there's a mass grave. Now this was uh, some days ago. Um, the night before last, uh, around, I think it was 11 p.m., I went with two other journalists 
to a district west, uh, it's in Donetsk, but on the west side of Donetsk, that was being shelled. Um, it had been shelled, I think, two hours prior. It was like 100 Grad missiles, according to reports I've seen, were shelling this residential area. Um, I believe one person was killed. By the time we got there, the fires were out, but there was a small, like a mini mart that was destroyed. We went to a residen uh, residential building uh, behind which uh, a shell had hit a school. We spoke with locals there and they said, this is normal. You know, this is what we've been enduring for the last eight years. So that was two nights ago. Um, three days ago, I think it was, I went to a market area also in the west of Donetsk that was shelled around, uh, I think it was 11.40 in the morning, uh, prime time for when the market would be crowded with people. Uh, five civilians were killed and over 20 were injured. Uh, and this is, again, shelling by Ukrainian forces. So th those are the kind of things I've been seeing the last number of days. Unbelievable. So Ukrainian Ukrainian forces doing the shelling. I want to get into some of the distinctions here about who in the Ukrainian forces are doing this. The Azov Battalion is something the Western media did cover prior to this invasion. In fact, mm -hmm. the United States Congress covered it and demanded that we stop sending money to the Azov Battalion because they are neo-Nazis. Interesting, yeah. right? right? But now the Western media seems to want to pretend that they do not exist. How big a part do you think they are playing in this conflict and should Westerners be aware of it since their tax dollars may be going to arm these individuals? Thank you very much for highlighting that. Um, they, they're playing a major part. I mean, if, if, if people are watching reports coming out of, for example, places like Mariupol, uh, there's Patrick Lancaster on the ground uh, reporting in English language. There's Murad Gazdiev reporting in English for RT. Um, and there's a number of other um, reports coming out of there from most primarily Russian journalists and also Donetsk uh, journalists. Um, they would be aware that the Azov uh, were responsible for uh, point-blank executions of civilians, Mariupol civilians, not just Mariupol everywhere, but I'm speaking right now about Mariupol. Um, also of occupying, they, they've embedded with the Ukrainian forces. So uh, together they've occupied residential buildings, again, referring to Mariupol. And so when you see all this uh footage that Western media is putting out of destruction. Yes, there is destruction in Mariupol, but they're not giving the context as to why. So that context is these Nazis with Ukrainian forces have been occupying these residential buildings, militarizing them, shooting on Russian and DPR forces, and then getting fire back. And that's where you see the, the destruction. Um, so yeah, Westerners should be alarmed that their tax money is going to fund uh, Nazis, not, not only Americans, but Canadians as well. I believe Canada has funded Ukrainian forces and thereby the, 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 the weapons and the, the money has also gone to Nazis. I think it's one billion. I might be wrong about that number, but it's a huge amount. The West is told that we must support Ukraine and send weapons and money. In fact, Nancy Pelosi making a sudden appearance there to meet with Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, and we need to push back against war crimes by Russia. That is the narrative that's playing out in the United States. One war crime story that was plastered all over Western media is the story you mentioned a moment ago, the mass graves in Mariupol. The story is, of course, that Russian soldiers killed nine to 10,000 people, buried them in unmarked graves. You went to this yeah. area. You saw it firsthand. What did yeah. you learn when you were there? Yeah, and I'd like to add uh, to the 
about the, the story. So you're right. They've, they've said up to nine or 10,000 people buried secretly by Russian forces to cover their war crimes. Um, I am emphasizing, of course, the ridiculous quotations. And they've been citing uh, the former mayor of Mariupol, who I, I have no idea where he is. He's certainly not in, in Mariupol, um, as saying this is the worst war crime of the 21st century. And anybody who's been following America's war crimes around the world should be appalled uh, at this claim. Uh, and he also made a reference to a, a World War II uh, crime of, of 33,000, I think the number was, uh, Jews killed by Nazis. So as I, as I noted in, um, in my article that came out on RT recently, this is uh, ludicrous and it's, it's huge. Um, it, it's, it's, it's appalling at so many levels because number one, this mayor uh, almost certainly is whitewashing the Nazis in his former city and in Ukraine. And number two, uh, you know, to compare this, what they are calling a mass grave to, uh, uh, you know, the extermination of 33,000 people in World War II is uh, an abominable lie. Um, what I saw was a an existing cemetery, which Western media have noted is is there. But then I saw uh, rows of newly dug graves. Now I don't know when they were dug. I don't know when the people that are buried there. I don't know how they were killed. But I do know uh, at most there were 400 of these new graves. By by the way, uh, almost 100 of which were empty. And then um, amongst these graves were uh, there were sorry, on the graves there were placards when the name was known and, and date of birth was put. And if, if, they, if the information wasn't available, then they just had numbers. But the interesting thing was while I was there with, I was with the RT journalist and his two cameramen. And while I was there, um, uh, the two men responsible for dig, digging the graves arrived. And uh, we spoke with them. Of course, I don't speak Russian. I'm very clear about that. So my colleague, Roman Kostarev, spoke with them, and I recorded. And they said um, they were responsible. For, they, they knew every person that was buried there. They specifically stated every person was buried in a separate grave with dignity um, in the most you know dignified manner possible in a coffin. And they even said Ukrainian soldiers were buried there. They're humans as well. Um, so, and we, Roman, my colleague Roman uh, asked them like, you know, are you aware of Western allegations? And they said they were really offended by it. And they said, that's absolutely a lie. And they again emphasized each person was buried in a coffin, in a separate grave. So now, you know, when you say mass grave, I think most people imagine a pit. Well, in fact, that's what this former mayor, the runaway mayor of Mariupol said. He specifically said a pit of, I think, 30 meters wide and bodies um, uh, thrown into the pit is what he said. And, you know, that's not what I was told. And that's not what I saw. Yeah, my when I think of a mass grave, I think of World War II, images of World War II, where Jews are just thrown into a pit, nameless and covered up uh, by the Nazis. That's what I think of mass graves. And that's not at all what you experienced. No, no. And the other point, you know, the other point to note is uh, Mariupol is pre predominantly ethnic Russian. So just logically, like, why would the Russian army and the DPR forces go out of their way to exterminate Russians? It doesn't right. make sense. I will ask you flat out, are you witnessing war crimes by Russians? This is something we've heard. Again, the Mariupol story, but in, 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 in general, have you seen war crimes committed by Russian soldiers? Well, I have not, but I, I will also be very clear. I am in the Donetsk People's Republic. I'm not in Ukraine, so I cannot witness what is happening there. But uh, now I would reference Scott Ritter, who was a former U.S. Army. Uh, he might have been Marine. I might be wrong about that. Yes, anyway, he's a Marine, yeah. 
Yeah. And he and other uh, analysts have been emphasizing actually Russia's strategy in their what they call a military operation to denazify Ukraine. They've been emphasizing it's actually been uh I don't want to use the word moderate. What's the word I want to use? Um, anyway, they've been saying like it's it's strategic. It hasn't been what we saw America do in Iraq, just flat out demolition of everything and killing of massive amounts of civilians and demolishing of the infrastructure. It's been strategic on military targets and it's been slow, slow in the sense, not slow. I, mean, I don't want to say that wrong, but it hasn't been like if Russia wanted to, they could have done a whole lot of destruction in Ukraine. But well, I've heard it said, and maybe you can... Strategically. And yeah. also another point is, uh, and I'm not a military expert or an analyst, so I don't want to mislead people, but uh, from what I've heard and what I've been reading and, and watching, they've been using a technique where they don't fully surround an area, but they surround it enough to pro prevent the flow of weapons and etc. to enable, to force the... Uh, Ukrainian military and the Nazis with them out of these areas. And that's that's quite different than just completely destroying a city like, for example, America did in Syria when they destroyed Raqqa, completely destroyed, killed maybe thousands of civilians. That's not what Russia is doing. So in fairness, I'll have to ask you then flat out, are you witnessing war crimes committed by Ukrainian forces? Uh, yes. I am. I mean, uh, I won't say that I was a direct witness to the moment that it happened, but again, as I mentioned, uh, three days ago, I think it was, I went to this market area that was uh, hit by Ukrainian grad missiles, Ukrainian fired grad missiles, again, killing five civilians in the prime of the day when, you know, when people, most people would be at the market. While I was there uh, taking photos and video footage, I met a man who was like with a safety council or committee or something with the market. And he was saying, you know, this has been happening every day and the Ukrainians know that they're firing at a market. There's no military target here. And I looked around and it was indeed a large market surrounded by residential buildings, no military target. And it was not the first time it has been targeted. So that that is a war crime deliberately targeting a crowded public area is a war crime and that's what ukraine has been doing for eight years and you know all these people talking about russia's war have been ignoring the fact that ukraine has been warring upon the donbass republics for eight years right yes that is something that's being ignored patrick lancaster has also arrived on the scene in moments where shelling has occurred in broad daylight in the middle of uh, civilian areas no military targets yes. uh, no military equipment uh, there, there really no no strategic advantage from what I can no. gather from some of these attacks. No, in fact, uh, March 14th, I believe it was maybe three blocks from where, from where I currently am, you know, so in the center of Donetsk, Ukraine fired a Tuchka-U missile and it had cluster munitions and it killed uh, 21 people and injured nearly 40, you know. And so, again, firing in, in I think it was... Uh, around noon i might be wrong about the time but anyway the point being firing on the city in the in the heart of the city uh during daytime knowing it would uh kill many civilians that's another war crime that's not the first time you know when i came here in 2019 and went to gorlovka that city uh north of donetsk 
was heavily hit in, uh, I believe it was 2014 or 2016, um, heavily hit and, and like many, many civilians killed, many children killed, and there's no military objective. It's completely it just, it's terrorizing the population. And actually the interesting thing, like when I talked with people, and I don't want to say that this is every single person here, but the people that I did speak with, both civilian and also in the, in the uh, DPR military, they said, you know, initially, we didn't necessarily need autonomy. We just, we didn't want what was happening in Kiev and the massacre in Odessa to come to us. You know, they were aware of the Nazis in Ukraine and what they were capable of. Um, but also they, they're ethnic Russians. They wanted to be able to speak their language, you know, and they also didn't want what Kiev has been doing, the rewriting of history, wherein uh, Nazis are now glorified and the Soviet army that liberated <laughs> these areas from Nazis are now vilified. They didn't obviously want that because, you know, this is their history. Uh, and that's that's what Ukraine has been doing. So they, they said, like, initially, we just wanted to be away from that. And then and then because of that crime of not wanting to be a part of what Kiev was doing, the Kiev regime started shelling them and has been for eight years. You have been writing about, you've been showing Ukrainians that welcome a Russian presence once they arrive. Can you explain that side of the story to our audience? Uh, yeah, um, basically, if you're if you're a Ukrainian citizen and you don't agree with the government, you are you can be imprisoned, you can be assassinated, you can be tortured. If you're a journalist, particularly, and there there are a long list of journalists that have been imprisoned, tortured, and assassinated by by the Ukrainian secret services or intelligence services, whatever, or by the Nazis themselves. So uh, if you're somebody who is critical of what the Zelensky government is doing uh, and you speak out about it, then you risk being killed. Um, so there's that aspect of, of living you know, under that, that rule all the time and that the terror of thinking any moment you could be killed by the government or by the Nazis. Um, but also there's a great deal of corruption. Okay, every country has corruption. But, you know, the Russian forces, contrary to how the Western media is portraying them, when, when they come, they're delivering humanitarian aid. And they're, uh, if there's destruction, they're helping to rehabilitate the area. So um, what I saw, for example, I came with a media delegation uh, here end of March, March 24th, I think. And we were here for two days and we went to an area that had been liberated uh, by DPR and Russian forces uh, a couple weeks prior at Volnavaka. There was a lot of destruction, but Russians were handing out um, the humanitarian aid and slowly but surely life was returning to that area. Um, but, you know, when Western media reported on that, they reported on the destruction of a hospital there, but they didn't report that the Ukrainian forces had occupied the hospital, had militarized it and had mined the intensive care unit before leaving. So there's there's a whole lot of context that's missing um, that people you know wouldn't understand why normal civilians would welcome Russian forces. They welcome them because it's the start of return to peace and stability. Hmm. And it's by the way, it's the same thing we saw in Syria. Western media wasn't reporting honestly on what they dubbed rebels, which were actually Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. And they weren't reporting on, you know, like areas like Eastern Ghouta or Eastern Aleppo that were occupied by these forces, that the people there were, again, the same thing. It's, it's the same scenario. They were starved. They were tortured. They were imprisoned. They were executed by these terrorists that the Western media was whitewashing and lauding as valiant rebels. And it's, it's the same scenario uh, now in Ukraine. 
Well, if you dig into this United States uh, State Department's website and you look at known human rights abusers, um, uh, terrorist organizations, the SBU is listed by the uh -huh. U.S. State Department on their website. We just did I a whole video on this. Um, and so known war crimes, making people disappear. I mean, it's yeah. listed right on the United States Department's website. They will disappear individuals. Um, they will be held against their will. We covered the story of the SBU grabbing uh, Gonzalo Lira, who was a Chilean um, blogger, journalist living in, in that area as well, and had been rounded up by the SBU and held against his will for about seven days. Then he was forced to sign a non-disclosure agreement after he was released. Uh, are you hearing similar stories to that? Uh, well, I mean, I, I definitely did. Uh, years prior, I, I was writing about a, a Ukrainian journalist, Kirill Vyshinsky, um, who was at the time of his imprisonment, he was editor, chief editor of RIA Novosti, Ukraine. And uh, he was in prison, I forget the time now, because this has been a few years, but I, it was over a year. I can't remember if it was a year and a half, but anyway, let's say over a year. He was imprisoned for his crime, uh, they, he was accused of treason. He was never uh, given a trial, by the way. He was imprisoned and tortured uh, for his crime of having published 14 or 15 articles in 2014. And the articles were on what was happening in 2014, around the time of the coup. And uh, the articles were of differing opinions. It wasn't just solely anti-Kiev or pro-Kiev, it was differing opinions. And none of them were written by Kirill Vyshinsky. He was, a, he was an editor, he published them. And they all had like the, you know, the, the caveat at the bottom, you know, this is not written by, I, I don't know what the caveat was, but anyway, it was clear he didn't write them. Um, he was in prison four years after the fact. So like just for all these people that are, are, are thinking, you know, uh, Ukraine is a democracy, it's not. Uh, this is a journalist in prison for publishing ed articles he did not write and, and, be, and he was tortured for it. So, I mean, he, and I remember I, I met him and, and interviewed him and he was pretty uh, humble and like didn't go into details about the torture, but he, he did mention colleagues of his who were killed by Ukraine for similar reasons, persecution of people that either were outspoken dissidents or in, in, you know, in his case, he simply published other people's work. So uh, yeah, it's, it's not uncommon. And in fact, I remember when I was writing about him, researching this website called Stalker Zone. Um, it has quite a lot of good information on Ukraine's crimes and researching, like there were activists, there were people that, for example, drove uh, pensioners from Donbass uh, to, to wherever they went to get their pensions and they were imprisoned or somebody who donated money to Donbass and he's imprisoned, you know, it's like, Anybody who shows sympathies for the Donbass Republic's faces uh, imprisonment, execution, or worse. I'm, I'm on a kill list, by the way. Um, I don't know when I was put on there. I don't know what my crime was. Was it going to Crimea and interviewing people and finding out they actually liked being a part of Russia and they actually described themselves as Russian? Or was it coming here to the Donbass and interviewing civilians and, and shedding, shining a, a tiny light on uh, the terror that they're enduring? I don't know. But what I do know is if I were to set foot in Ukraine proper, I would be killed. Almost certainly. How did you how, how did you become aware of the fact that you were on this kill list and, and who is operating this kill list? Um, I forget the name of the person who's operating it. I, I wrote an article about it, uh, but the, Zelensky is aware of it. And because when I wrote that article, I remember finding uh, some quote. Uh, I think the quote was from uh, the Russian website TASS. But anyway, Zelensky basically 
if I remember correctly, uh, defended the existence of the list, like saying we don't we can't take this website down because that would be, <laughs> ironically, um, interfering with freedom of speech. This this from the government that imprisons and kills uh, journalists. Uh, but yeah, I was told that I was on the list by a friend, and then I, I found I've, they don't have a whole lot of information about me. But the thing about this list is, if they do get your passport, if they do get your address, your telephone number, they all publish it. And then they'll let the thugs, the Nazis, do the dirty work, or maybe the intelligence. I don't know who's always responsible for the uh, assassinations. But there was a, a Ukrainian journalist. His name's Oles. I forget his last name, Buzain or something like that. All his information was put on the list, and, and at some point afterwards, he was killed. Unbelievable, or not not unbelievable. If you've been following the story, the West seems to want to shut down anything that shows Russia or Russian presence. Uh, in any other, you know, as anything other than a negative light, that's what they want to shut down. So talking about this would make you and me Russian sympathizers or Putin supporters. So how do you handle that criticism when someone just publishes a comment on a YouTube video and just says, you're obviously a puppet of Putin? How do you handle that kind of criticism? Uh it's 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 really tiring and and annoying, uh, but it's something I've gotten for years uh, because I was going to Syria and I was reporting, you know, not even that much about the president. If I said anything about the president of Syria, I would say he has overwhelming support by the Syrian people. When I say overwhelming, I mean like seventy percent, eighty percent. I can't give an actual number, but everyone I meet when I go to Syria loves the man. So. That that's kind of the most I would say about him. Most of my reporting was on the people. I would go and interview people, whether in Aleppo or Ghouta or wherever. And for the crime of giving them a voice, I was called uh, all the names you mentioned and, and a whole lot more. Um, and you know, it's it's it doesn't it doesn't change what I'm saying. And I always maintain like. Okay, I write I write opinion articles for RT roughly one a month. So that's not a lot of money. So you know, people will say, "Well, you're just on the Kremlin payroll." Okay, I do receive money from RT, which is a Russian <laughs> source, uh, but it's it's not enough to pay the rent. You know, it's certainly not enough to live a lavish life. Uh, the, the point is, like, they're they're trying to. It's like calling someone a conspiracy theorist. They're trying right. to shut you up. They're trying to make you afraid. Oh no, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm being called this. I better not say what I'm saying. I don't care. Call me what you want. Because uh, for me, the important thing is is telling the truth as much as I can. I might be imperfect. I might say things wrong sometimes. But I'm telling the truth when I say these things uh, from here or from Sierra, wherever I'm reporting. Um, so, yeah, back to the whole, like, the names that you will be called and I've been called over and over again. You know, they, they, they don't really attack um, what you have to say. They don't attack the content. They just call you a name. And right. that, that does work for some people. Just like if you're critical of Israel, someone will call you anti-Semitic. And you're like, no, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm critical of these policies. I'm critical of the wars. I'm critical of Israel's uh, targeting of Palestinians. That doesn't make you anti-Semitic. But by calling someone that, you know, they, they're afraid their reputation will be tarnished or something. So that's the whole point of these names. Yeah, and they sh it shuts down conversation, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the that's the whole goal. They, they they'll post these things, but they never actually watch the content of the video. They never read right. the article. They read a headline and they just assume. They make assumptions about it. I wanted to talk about some numbers now, Ava, if we can. Um, there are a lot of numbers being thrown about around by Western media as to the number of war dead on both sides. So the British 
Defense Secretary George Wallace said on Monday that about 15,000 Russian troops have been killed since Russia invaded uh, Ukraine in February. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky uh, told CNN last week that about 2,500 to 3,000 soldiers have been killed. Then Forbes magazine in the United States is taking Zelensky's word for it, not questioning any numbers that come out of the Zelensky government. I want to actually quote what Forbes says so we can have some context here, not taking them out of context. This is Forbes' own words. Forbes says, quote, Russia's death toll likely outpaces that of Ukrainian military personnel. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky told CNN last week about 2,500 to 3,000 soldiers have been killed, likely a more reliable figure than the 14,000 Ukrainian troops Russia says it had killed March 25th. So basically, Forbes is just saying we're, we're, we're taking Zelensky's word for it. Um, what have you seen to confirm or deny these numbers? I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I actually can't really speak to that. I'm, I'm not aware of the numbers. It's not something that's been on my radar to follow. Uh, I've always been more interested in the like the, the situation for the, the normal people, the, the mm -hmm. civilians. So I'm, I'm not aware, but what I could say offhand without being able to cite any sources is that I'm 99% sure that's a huge exaggeration on the part of uh, Ukraine and Zelensky. And I'm not surprised um, because that the Western media, Forbes and whomever else are taking Zelensky for his word because that's what they did again with reference to Syria. They took uh, unnamed activists who usually had affiliations to Al-Qaeda or ISIS at their word. Um, but uh, again, I think it's probably a huge exaggeration and the intent is to depict Russia as weak and losing uh, this this military uh, objective, um, and you know it's not actually. A another thing I've seen um, is like saying, "Oh well, Russia retreated from Kiev or from wherever," but it's my understanding is its goal was never to uh, take Kiev in the first place. So you know, retreating is is a way of depicting Russia as weak, but um, it's not. And you know, who I, I would recommend people follow. Um, there's a, a Russian citizen living in the States named Andrei Martyanov, and he's a military expert, and he's somebody, you know, you can look to for a pretty accurate assessment of how things are going in terms of the military aspect. Great, great. We'll invite him on the show. You yeah. covered the yeah. story, you covered the story about the white helmets in Syria. We covered that story here a few weeks ago, and we also covered reports that a false flag attack may unfold in Ukraine with white <clears throat> helmets arriving to assist in the staging of a fake attack. Yeah. Have you seen evidence of this? What is your experience uh, experience covering the white helmets? And, you know, because I think a lot in the West would say, oh, this that's a total conspiracy theory. And yet... The stories persist, and there are there are stories this week that the white helmets have already arrived in Ukraine. Mm. Can you ex can you talk to that? What is your uh, understanding of that situation? I mean, I've I've seen similar stories as you're mentioning, and and warnings actually from the Russian government that there will be a kind of a false flag or some sort of hoax uh, that will be blamed on Russia, like the Bucha. Uh, hoax um you know I, and i I'm, i should i mentioned that but now I, I can't really talk in depth about bucha all i know is that uh it was a it was described as a massacre perpetrated by russian forces but uh, there's a whole lot of um misinformation about that and it, it is almost certainly if not certainly uh something that was perpetrated by the ukrainian government uh to blame russia but in terms of the white helmets they've been used as a 
a propaganda front, a campaign to both demonize uh, Syria and Russia in Syria, and, and also to, to laud you know, the terrorists that they continue to dub as rebels. Um, and the White Helmets have been heavily funded by Western governments. Um, and they've been, basically their story is that they're a bunch of volunteers that used to be bakers and who knows what, and they, they came together to, to rescue uh, Syrian civilians from evil Russia and Syria. But in reality, as I mentioned a second ago, they've been heavily funded by the West and they work exclusively uh, in areas controlled by terrorist factions. And okay, you could still argue, well, that's because if they work in government, Syrian government areas, they're gonna be persecuted. That's not the case, actually. The reason they work exclusively with terrorist factions is that they work hand in hand with terrorist factions. Um, and when I would go to areas like, for example, Eastern Ghouta to Duma in uh, 2018, I think it was April, 2018, all of Western media was screaming, you know, based on evidence produced by the White Helmets, which was uh, video footage and photos, they were screaming that Syria had used a chemical weapon in Duma. And the White Helmets um, released a video uh, showing a, a, a medical point, a hospital um, in Duma and showing civilians like being hosed down, showing this boy Hassan Diab being hosed down and claiming this was a chemical attack. Uh, I went to Duma, two or three weeks after that and went to the same hospital and saw and talked with medical staff and they're like no 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 here's what happened um civilians came in and we were treating them somebody came in while we were treating civilians somebody came into the room screaming uh kamawi kamawi in arabic uh, chemical chemical attack so and he was like they were strangers they weren't from the region and uh but we were treating them just the civilians in the hospital for normal shelling uh, dust inhalation and other things and he said they didn't show any signs of having been um, exposed to any sort of chemical agent i asked them like were you wearing any sort of protective uniforms or anything uh because you know assuming they were treating actual chemical patients then they themselves should be protected and they said no and i said did any of the staff suffer any sort of problems no uh so this was just one of many many um fabrications uh by the white helmets and the propaganda firms behind them and the whole uh the whole point was to vilify russia and syria said that they've used chemical weapons against the people um and then you know eventually like to support the Western plan to topple the Syrian government. Uh, so, uh, sorry, I'm <laughs> rambling. No, the context um, is incredibly important because everyone yeah. saw the images of these children that looked like they were covered in something. And of course, we know now from your huh. reporting and others that it was dust, that it was yeah. it was not uh, a chemical attack. I, I mentioned the boy Hassan Diab. So he, I forget his age, maybe 12, maybe younger. He and uh, a number of other uh, Syrians from Duma, including medical staff, uh, testified, you know, like, OK, this this did not happen. And the boy, the boy was given, I think, dates and uh, some sort of sweets uh, and, and told to come into the hospital. And he's like, there's nothing wrong with me. Um, but of course, Western media dismissed their testimonies, even though they're civilians from the very place and in the very video, they were and, and medical staff as well. They were dismissed as this being Russian propaganda, as Western media does. But there was another boy um, in Aleppo in 2016, uh, Amran Daknish, and uh, his house, uh, it was said by Western media that his house was um, hit by an airstrike, either by Russia or Syria. And again, the White Helmets come onto the scene and have him in the ambulance and uh, his photo, adorable little boy, dusty, sitting in the ambulance. This photo 
was splashed across um, you know news sites and across televisions television screens around the world. Um, you know, CNN's anchor was sobbing for this boy. You know, this shouldn't have happened. But in reality, uh, he wasn't, number one, wasn't uh, badly injured. He was mildly injured, as was the father. But it wasn't from an airstrike. It was from a terrorist had fired at the building. And the, the area was known to be sympathetic to the Syrian government. Um, and terrorists basically exploited this boy, the, West, the White Helmets, and, and the media exploited this boy, claiming he was badly injured by, again, an airstrike. He wasn't. And the father spoke out and said, you know, um, this media, you have blood in your hands for, for lying. And the thing is, this boy was said to be the, the, the face of suffering in Syria. And just a month prior, a uh, terrorist of the um, Norazina Zinki uh, faction had, excuse me for saying this, but they had savagely beheaded a 12 or 13 year old Palestinian boy. And this boy was crying for mercy, crying for a bullet to the head instead of being having his head cut off. And so this had happened a month prior. And the, the, the real sickness of the story about, you know, saying Amran Daknish was the face of suffering when this boy had been, uh, and he's not the only one, of course, um, executed a month prior. The photographer who took the photo of Amran Daknish in the ambulance was good friends with the very terrorist that beheaded Abdullah Issa, not just in general. He, he has a, a grinning selfie of him with the very same terrorist that, that decapitated uh, Abdullah Issa. So, uh, and, and, and then this goes back to the White Helmet. So they, you know, they're, they're using this, these images and they're using uh, these purported rescue scenes uh, to show that they're valiant and they're saving civilians in Russia and, and Syria are killing civilians. But in fact, one other aspect, and my, my colleague and, and good friend Vanessa Bealey has by far done the most work on the White Helmets. One other aspect is, um, you know, when we would talk with civilians, they'd say, no, they didn't help us. And what they would do is they'd steal from the dead and they're even implicated in, in organ theft. Uh, I would highly recommend uh, both Vanessa Bealey and Maxime Grigoriev's work, um, testimonies that they've taken from civilians talking about this. And Maxime Grigoriev has taken like hundreds of testimonies, including even from former White Helmets and former terrorists. And they admit, yes, they work with terrorists and yes, they are involved in organ uh, theft and organ trade. So, um, you know, that's, I'm sorry, that's very serious specific. Your question was about Ukraine. Uh, I would not be surprised if they appear in Ukraine because they are a very effective propaganda marketing campaign to, again, um, demonize Russia. And that's what Ukraine needs. That's what the Western media needs in order to continue pumping weapons into, into Ukraine and continue, you know, this, this war on the Donbass. So I cut that one just a little bit short, my friends, just for the sake of time. Um, uh, Eva Bartlett is crushing it in Ukraine. Like that's that's the most raw truth that you can hear about what is actually happening. Um, and it's a complete narrative flip from what we're be what we're being told. Now, <clears throat> I want to bring us into today, as that one was a few months ago. Um, I want to bring us into to, to today. Um, Clayton Morris did another terrific interview, uh, this time with uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, a uh, military strategist, um, and he's talking about what's going on today. So let's, uh, let's turn it back over for this interview so you guys can get caught right up with uh, what's, what's truly going on and what's being said, what's lies and what isn't. So let's, uh, let's turn it back over to Redacted for another great interview. Russia is mobilizing an additional 200,000 troops, readying a massive offensive. Poland is ready to send F-16 jets to Ukraine in coordination with NATO. And Ukraine's head of intelligence 
says Crimea will be re- be retaken by Ukraine. Be retaken by Ukraine. Joining us now is Colonel Douglas McGregor. Colonel, I want to get you to talk about all of this and in this breaking news in just a second. But first, you wrote a new piece called This Time It's Different. And I want to start there. You point out how neither we nor our allies are prepared to fight an all-out war with Russia. This is what you write. And yet on Sunday, we have the NATO Admiral Robert Bauer telling us that we are ready for a, quote, direct confrontation with Russia. Listen. We are ready to a direct confrontation with Russia. We are. Um, I think what we have done after the war started was the battle groups uh, along the eastern flank. We had four in the north, the, the, the three Baltic states and Poland, the enhanced forward presence uh, battle groups. Uh, we have decided now, the, the leaders in Madrid have uh, decided to uh, create four more battle groups in uh, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, Romania and Bulgaria and to basically uh, strengthen those uh, battle groups, make them a little bit larger, make, give them a little bit more support in terms of fire support and, uh, uh, and give them better stocks for ammunition and other things. So uh, I think that is, the, that is an important message for the Russians, that our posture has changed to show them that we are ready if they would have an idea to, to come to NATO. The challenge for both sides is that the industries, the defense industries in the West and in Russia need to ramp up production. And uh, we basically have an economy now that is just in time, just enough. We have to have this debate on prioritization. And that is, in a way, talking about a wartime economy but in peacetime. And that's difficult, of course. So, Colonel, in one breath, he says that we're ready to take on Russia head on, while in another breath, he says we don't have the weapons to do it. It sounds like he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. What do you make of that? Well, not a great deal. Uh, let's be frank. If, if this is supposed to reassure your potential opponent of your readiness to defeat him, it's a pretty stupid statement. Uh, Frankly, I I don't know what uh, they're talking about, ready for a confrontation. The confrontation with Russia will not be in the mid-Atlantic. It's not going to be in the mid-Pacific. In other words, it's not going to be a naval war per se. And any of our surface vessels, and for that matter, even our submarines, could be tracked. Now, the nuclear submarines in deep water can't be easily tracked, but the surface vessels can. So the notion that somehow or another he's ready to do something strikes me as ludicrous nonsense. So in your piece, you talk about the readiness uh, right now. And um, I like how you start. You say, you know, this time it's different that uh, somehow somehow they're telling us that it's going to be different. And NATO is not prepared to do this. We're running out of ammunition. Um, where do you think NATO goes from here? Um, there, it sounds like, and if you listen to this admiral talking, we need a, a wartime economy. He says that we need to turn our factories into military production machines right now because our stocks are drying up and we're going to take Russia head on. We need to convert factories in all of these NATO countries and and go all out for a full-blown head-on collision with Russia. Well, it's useful to keep in mind that in Russia, the manufacturing facilities for military equipment and uh, weapons and ammunition are running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Russia's already mobilized and integrated 300,000. The possibility that they will bring in more is very, very likely. I, I don't dispute that. 
because every time the Russians look to us and indicate a willingness to talk, we make it abundantly clear that the Russians have a choice. They can either completely withdraw from Ukraine or commit suicide. That's not necessarily a good starting point for negotiations. So the Russians are doing what you would expect them to do. They're getting ready for a much larger fight if necessary. This is something we're not prepared for. No one in Europe is prepared for this. We're not prepared to mobilize anybody in Western Europe. The only people who've mobilized soldiers at all to this point are the Poles. And the Poles are, are courageous people. There's no question about it. I think the notion of going to war with Russia at this stage is idiotic. But they also don't have the most modern equipment and capabilities that we do. So even though they can provide numbers, they're not necessarily capable of augmenting us. And we have at most 50,000 combat troops in Europe. At most, we have 100,000 soldiers in Europe, but that doesn't mean combat soldiers. That just means soldiers. In terms of those people that carry the fight to the enemy, that, that close with and destroy the enemy, that launch rockets, missiles, and, and ammunition at the enemy, no, we, we've only got 50,000. We're now looking at a force in and around Ukraine of what, 700,000 plus, with the potential to go close to a million and new plans to expand, permanently expand the Russian military establishment, especially the army. This is all crazy nonsense. We ought to stop talking about it. We need to get back to understanding the Ukrainians are losing badly. They're taking horrific casualties. They're crumbling down in Southern Russia and the Russians have yet to launch their major offensives. I mean, stop and consider that. They're not even facing the, the body of the force that's right. on its way to them at some point. And so they're the, falling apart. So the 200,000 then um, in southern in southern Ukraine, you're talking about this 200,000 that uh, that Jen Stoltenberg said over the, said last night that Putin is mobilizing this additional 200,000 for this new invasion to topple Ukraine, and he won't stop. Warns the NATO chief, um, he's he's not going to stop. So this new mobilization, well, he's not going to stop until the Ukrainian forces are destroyed. Right. That was made very, very clear early on. That's the threat to Russia. And of course, we keep calling this an invasion. In, re in reality, this is a counterstroke. He's responding to the threat that metastasized in eastern Ukraine designed to destroy Russia. We're talking about defeating Russia, humiliating Russia, dismembering Russia. Good Lord, I'm surprised he hasn't simply declared war at this point and mobilized millions. Right. Well, you have then, I, I want to put up this quote by Steve Bannon, because I think it's certainly when we talk about Crimea, right? So this is what we've been hearing from the intelligence, the intelligence chief in Ukraine, as I mentioned at the top, that now the Ukrainian intelligence uh, is saying that Crimea will be retaken by Ukraine. And here's what Steve Bannon said. The globalists with the Biden regime leading have taken the war from defend Ukraine to liberate Crimea after $100 billion and losing a third of the country to the Russian army. So now this is the new message. Liberate Crimea. Forget defend Ukraine. Is that what we're starting to see now more this talk? Is that's the net, that's the new mission? You know, I'm, I'm beginning to think that uh, there was never much coherent strategy to begin with other than we're, we're here to hurt Russia. I mean, that's, a, that's essentially what we were told. This whole thing has become incoherent now. Right. The, the notion of, of striking at and liberating, as they say, liberating Crimea is a bunch of nonsense. It's all crazy. And I, I'm afraid what the Russians are discovering is the only way to put an end to this nonsense is for them to 
commit 100% to the destruction of the Ukrainian forces and ultimately to the elimination of this regime in Kyiv. Now, they're going to do that. But instead of seeing this sort of massive blitzkrieg that we're accustomed to because of the experience with the Germans in World War II, I think you're talking about three or four axes where you have effectively meat grinders on each one. Imagine bulldozers that are just moving forward, steamrolling what they find in their path until ultimately everything is gone. This is going to take a little longer, but the Russians want to be absolutely certain that they've annihilated the enemy. That's what we're going to watch. I also think the Russians are very concerned about our impulsiveness. We're in no position to interfere with what they're doing in Ukraine. And this is the reason I wrote this again. People need to be warned. This regime in Washington is amateurish. They're ideological and amateurish. They, they don't really understand what they're up against. They never did. They miscalculated when they thought, well, the Russians are weak. See, they didn't come in their gangbusters the way we would. Well, of course they didn't because they were dealing with brother Slavs. They didn't want to kill Orthodox Christian Slavs. They were trying to find a way around it. When it became clear there was no alternative, that's when everything changed. So you're going to see the, the giant meat grinders show up and crush whatever is left in that country. But the more we talk about lashing out, the more we talk about, quote unquote, liberation or removing Putin or these kinds of things, the worse it's going to get. We got to get out of this business and start coming to terms with reality. But reality is not very popular in Washington. No, but it seemed like there was a moment of clarity from Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in Rammstein, Germany, just last week when he said, and you pointed this out in your piece, when he said, look, there's a narrow window here for NATO. There's a very narrow window for us to, I guess, what he was saying is funnel as much weapons as we can in order to somehow help with this offensive right now before Putin launches this massive this massive uh, I, I think he's talking about trying to rescue Ukraine before it collapses. Hmm. Right now, a friend of mine who is a demographer got a hold of me and said, look, Doug, at the beginning of this war, there were supposedly 37.4 million people in Ukraine. Says in reality, there were already 2 million Ukrainians working in the United Kingdom and the European Union. And once the war began, over 10 million Ukrainians left. In other words, they packed their bags and they moved out. A million plus went into Russia, the rest went west. Now, if you look at those numbers and then you consider that right now inside the areas currently controlled by the Russians, there are 4 million so-called Ukrainian citizens. Of course, they're Russians. They speak Russian, they are Russians, and they're living under Russian administration. They're all very happy to have, quote unquote, been liberated. But when you start adding up these numbers, and then you look at the casualties that no one wants to tell the truth about, you're looking at 18 to 22 million people left in Ukraine. Wow. Now, Clayton, that's the size of the Netherlands. The Netherlands. You wow. cannot maintain this war with a, a million plus under arms and the enormous quantities of equipment being poured into it with 22 million people right now, especially when they're all living on the edge of poverty. They have no energy. They're, they're worn out. They're exhausted. And the discontent in Ukraine is absolutely out of, out of the ballpark. People mm -hmm. there are sick of it, and they're sick of Zelensky. His soldiers keep posting videos that they take of themselves and their comrades on the front line saying, here we are. We're starving. We're freezing. We're being abandoned. The wounded are being left alive, uh, alone to die. 
And now we also have this epidemic with tuberculosis that the West refuses to recognize. These are terrible conditions. Ukraine is headed for collapse. So Austin is saying, look, give us all you can right now because this may be our last shot. Now inside NATO, though everyone is keeping quiet, most of NATO is absolutely enraged that this continues. They want it to stop. They see no point in this. But everyone is afraid to contradict or cross the United States. And I understand that. But they want good, ter good terms with us. They want good relations with us. They want to trade with us. But increasingly, privately, they're saying this is out of control. We didn't sign up for this. And the Europeans did not sign up for total war with anybody. Right. Well, and it seems like you've got these countries that are, you know, as my dad used to say, uh, stuck between a, what is it? Stuck between a hell and a handbasket. No, I, I can't forget Rock all that. Rock in a hard place. Rock in a hard yeah, place, yeah. hell in a handbasket. All my dad's idioms growing up, it's hard to remember. Some of them are off color, and I can't use the language here on the show. Yeah, um, but, uh, you know, you see like countries like Poland, uh, countries like Portugal, who are funneling old 1970s leopard tanks there just to, I guess, appease the West and say, here, President Biden, see, we have these old museum pieces. We, we want to be in your good graces. And Poland now is going to send F-16s and and they just got all these new Apache helicopters that they're buying from the U.S. and going to be sending. So uh, you're right. I think they're just they're just going to keep funneling this there to make the United States happy. Is that the goal? I think that's true for everybody but Poland. Hmm. And I think this Polish government lives in the distant past. When you mention Russia, I think they see Bolshevik Russia in the 1920s. They see the Soviet Union, they see Stalin. You know, they, they refuse to come to terms with the reality that Russia is not a Soviet state, it's not a communist state. The Russians are not interested in a war with Europe. They want desperately to do business with Europe. No one in no, Moscow does not want to occupy and rule other people that are not Russians. Right. I mean, one of the great lessons of imperialism is that imperialism doesn't work very well. Territorial imperialism is expensive. You end up with large numbers of people who are foreign to you. They don't really want to be governed by you. The Russians learned this. And this was Alexander Solzhenitsyn's mission. Uh, you know, his uh, famous observation, he said, we Russians should be glad that these people are free and independent of us. We don't want to rule them. We want our own country. And no one is more devoted to Alexander Solzhenitsyn than Putin. So the notion that he that the Russians want to come in and deal with 40 million unhappy, miserable Poles is absurd. Right. It's just not true. But they're pushing this war. And I think in their minds, they believe that if they do this hard enough, that they will endear themselves to us. They haven't figured out something. We don't live in Europe. Hmm. You yeah. know, we're a maritime and an aerospace power. We don't maintain major land forces overseas. That's why you've only got 50,000 combat troops, if that, in Europe right now. So they've lost their minds. And we have had a bad habit of over the years overextending ourselves. And when people came to us and said, well, we don't like country X, help us, we should have said many, many times, get along with your neighbors. Hmm. War is not the only option. Right. Find a way forward. Well, so we're in the position of wag the, the, the tail wagging the dog. We're the dog. Everybody's got a hold of our tail and wants to wag the Deccans out of it. Well, it seemed and I just got from your piece, it really seems like we're at this inflection point right now, this tipping point. You know, if, if, if NATO really wants to go all in and do whatever it can to try to, quote unquote, save what's left of Ukraine, this is going to be a disaster. Either that or they pick it up and they go home. 
which doesn't seem likely. Well, well, Clayton, back in January, I was interviewed in Washington by Dimitri Symes for one of, one of his programs. And I was asked specifically about NATO. And I said, if we push this and uh, the Russians go in and we fail to negotiate an end to this quickly, this will destroy NATO. Hmm. Remember, NATO was founded as a defensive alliance was never designed for offensive operations. Right. There's nothing in the NATO charter about attacking anyone. Everything's about being the object of attack, the victim of attack. We have been trying to use NATO as an offensive weapon since the 1990s, since uh, stupid people like Senator Luger in the Senate said, well, either NATO is out of area, in other words, it's going to operate beyond Europe, or it's out of business. And most most of us stood around at the time in the military and said, well, maybe it needs to go out of business because there's no reason for it to exist anymore. Hmm. So we, we've reinvigorated in our minds the Russian threat. We've provoked it. We succeeded. It's there. But it would be misleading to assume that there is an aspiration to dominate the continent. It's a losing proposition. The Russians know that. That's not what they're about. They're very disappointed in the Germans, who are their principal trading partners and can't understand why Germany has turned so radically hostile to Russia. There's no reason for it. Poland, however, is the danger point because Poland is the one nation that will commit itself all out to war against the Russians, as foolish and misguided as that is. No one else wants that. So I think as this, as this moves forward and we put more and more pressure on the alliance, eventually the alliance will crumble because this is not what Europeans want. All you have to do is look at the polls. 60 plus percent of Europeans everywhere are saying, no, we don't want a war with Russia. You're in Portugal. The Portuguese have said, sure, send them, send them our old stuff. Make them happy. We love the United States. We want good relations with them. I don't see any Portuguese lining up to fight in the east, in no eastern way. Ukraine. Forget it. It's not going to happen. No way. Unbelievable. So this could lead to the, the total destruction of NATO. Um, and uh, I'm always worried about that. Yeah, NATO, NATO is a sort of a, what was the old Henry James used to say, sacred cows are never slain, they simply vanish. Well, over time, I think NATO would simply have vanished because there was no real requirement for it. But now I think there's a good chance it will be slain hmm. and go out of business the hard way. Right. You always need an enemy. So you try to create one, provoke one, and it's going to come back to bite you. Uh, fascinating. I would encourage all of you guys to go out there and read uh, the Colonel's great piece. I'll link it up in the description. A really fascinating read um, in the American Conservative this weekend. So thank you for that. And thanks, as always, for your great insight, Colonel. We really appreciate it. Sure, Clayton. Good to talk with you. So there it is, my friends. Two um, refreshing takes on what is actually going on in Ukraine, um, how the narratives are being twisted by the uh, the mainstream media in the Western nations and uh, flat out the, the unraveling of the lies of, of the West media is, is what we're, what we're uh, basically exposing here. Um, there's no surprise. I don't think there's any surprise for you. There wasn't a big surprise for me. It was uh, some of the methods that they're using um, going about. Um, the fact that you've got people on the ground telling you that uh, the Western governments, Canada and the U.S. are funding uh, Nazi battalions, uh, neo-Nazi battalions uh, through the funding of Ukraine. Um, I don't think that surprises anybody in this audience, but that's to have the confirmation of that is is uh, unbelievable. Um, it makes me not want to pay taxes in this country ever again. If if I'm under, uh, if I if my if my money is going to fund neo-Nazi regimes 
in other countries, why am I giving them money? That's my thoughts about that. I don't want I don't want another red cent taken from me until we get rid of this criminal empire that is stealing our money and giving it to neo Nazis. <clears throat> Anyway, it's uh, one of those ones. If you haven't heard these interviews before, feel free to listen to it again. I, you know, I, I listened to both of them, and and to listen to them again to broadcast them, I caught, I picked up even more stuff. It's it's unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, or share it wherever you see fit. Share it on any social that you think is uh, is appropriate, and uh, get it out there. So. Um, <clears throat> Like I said, it was one of those shows where I don't say much, but when I stumble across these incredible interviews like this, uh, I, I have no problems turning uh, Canadian Patriot Radio over to the great uh, uh, investigative journalists that are bringing you the actual truth. That's what this show is all about. And in Canada, we are under such a, a censorship. of Even that Eva Bartlett, uh, the original uh, clip that I had was from Facebook. Well, Facebook, it'll let you send the link, but as, min- as soon as you try to open it in Canada it tells you that the link doesn't work. So I had to go through Rumble and, and do the same thing and send it to myself a different way just so, so I could bring it to the show. Like, it's it's just incredible the level of censorship that we're living under right now. And, uh, you know, do you think we're far off from uh, people being disappeared in Canada that speak out against this fascist regime that we've got here? I don't think so. You heard Eva Bartlett tell you that uh, Ukraine is not a democracy at all. You know, when you hear her talking about uh, journalists that are being basically kidnapped by the the uh, <clears throat> secret service of Ukraine and tortured and killed, um, you know, that and people having this illusion that Ukraine is a democracy under under something like that, and and hearing about the Ukrainians basically bombing eastern eastern Ukraine because they're they're uh, Russian speaking or you know Russians basically Rus- Russian heritage in eastern Ukraine. Who's really the bad guy here, and why are Western governments funding? Um, <clears throat> A regime that has been doing that to its own people for eight fucking years. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Sickening. It's sickening. Like I said, I don't want to give I don't want to give this criminal empire in my country any more money if this is what they're gonna be doing. And we know and we know damn well that it's not just going to the the uh, Nazi battalion. You know, when you got Zelensky meeting with BlackRock to figure out how to launder our money back to the people that stole it you know it's just sickening anyway my friends we're running over so that's where we'll end this one as always if you want to reach out to me you can find me on facebook the very platform that is censoring some of the information i'm bringing to you uh it's canadian patriot radio use the message button it still works well i haven't gotten any messages for a while on that one so maybe it isn't working Who knows? Who knows? But uh, that's how you can find me on Facebook. If you prefer email, it's CanadianPatriotRadio at at, uh, gmail.com. The Telegram room is t.me backslash CPR underscore two. And then the website is where I prefer the traffic to go is CanadianPatriotRadio.ca. Thank you so much for tuning in again, my friends. And until next time, in all thy arms, sons, command.
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Canadian Patriot Radio. CPR is not filmed before a live studio audience. If you like the show, friends, make sure you give us a thumbs up and share us on all your social media platforms. Until next time, take care.